with me in your Bible um, to Genesis chapter 10. That is where we are going to spend uh, our time this morning. If you don't have a Bible, um, or you don't have yours on you, just invite you to slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get you a Bible. We want you to have God's Word uh, open in front of you. Um, As we talk about the grandeur of God's word, um, we want to handle it rightly. Um, We want to sit humbly under God's word. And so my goal is not to say to you anything new this morning, um, but rather just to to come together and understand the truth of what God has already said. Uh, And so we want you to be able to see that uh, as we walk through that together. Um, It's about one in six. Those are the odds. So think of rolling a dice and getting a, getting a one or getting any particular number. It's by no means a guarantee, but, you know, it's pretty, pretty likely. According to Oxford philosopher Toby Ord, those are the odds that the human race will go extinct this century. One in six. Rolling the dice. He's looking, of course, at the dangers of things like asteroids that are careening through space that may actually end up on a collision course for Earth. NASA is actually working on this idea of can we, can we do a, an Armageddon and plow a, a satellite into an asteroid and, and knock it off course, protect ourselves. Um, he's looking at things like this super volcano that my family hopes to go visit this summer in Yellowstone. Um, that thing blows. It could be it. It could be the end. Uh, he's looking at things like nuclear war, the possibility, high likelihood, that we're just a bunch of hotheads that are going to absolutely destroy ourselves. One in six. One in six. And so it's based on that that Ord makes the argument the human race must become a multi-planetary species. And uh, you've heard that before. Um, we're well on our way to avoiding this risk as Elon Musk is putting everything into building these spaceships um, to shoot up into the heavens. And, and his most recent prediction uh, is that by 2029, we're going to have people on Mars, a colony started there, and we'll survive. doesn't matter how many billions of dollars it takes. It doesn't matter. Uh, even if it costs us some human lives, we are going to survive. We're going to make it. The human race will not go quietly into that dark night. It's not just a fight for survival, right? It's our identity. This is who we are. We are survivors. And and so um, this is what it's all about. Our world just trying to continue. We're the ones who are in control. It's amazing how little uh, human nature actually changes. The name's locations, projects evolve over time, um, but the heart of man is the same. And and that's what we see looking back into Genesis 10 and 11. Um, They weren't building a rocket ship, they're building a tower, building this structure that would ensure that they would make a name for themselves and that they would not be dispersed, that they would not be destroyed. Their, Their culture, their people would survive. Have a look with me back at Genesis 10. Um, this is one section. We're taking a pretty big bite this morning. We're going to go from 10.1 all the way to 11.9. Um, you'll see we've been kind of watching those uh, Toledot statements. These are the generations of, start of verse 10. Uh, there's another one in 11, verse 10. So uh, 10.1 to 11.9 is kind of one section um, talking about the, the story of humanity divided. Humanity divided. It's one section, but there are two pretty distinct parts. And, and actually, as we go into it, I think it's helpful to note those parts are not in chronological order. And, and so we're going to look at chapter 10 first, which is called the Table of Nations. This is the world divided and, and parted out and spread with its languages and its families all over the earth. Uh, and then we're going to come to 11, 1 to 9, um, which is the reason. This is why it happened. This is how it all started. So chapter 10 is the reality of what is. Chapter 11 uh, is the reason for it. And, and of course, you know me, we can't just stay here as we come to the end. We'll start looking forward um, to the gospel and the great reversal of it. Um, but let's not spoil the ending just yet. So chapter 10, um, we see the reality 
And uh, we're going to work our way through it just kind of a couple verses at a time instead of reading the whole thing at once. Um, So let me read for us first um, verses 1 to 5. This is Moses explaining uh, the reality of this divided world. So these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons that were born to him after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tagarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans and their nations. So here are um, the sons of Noah, and and then he begins into uh, the sons of Japheth. And and if you're paying attention, you kind of see that pattern. Um, He gives us the sons of Noah, and then he picks up on one of those sons of Noah and gives his sons, and then he picks up on one of those sons and gives his sons. We kind of these layers as you're tracking through this, there's lists of names that I'm going to butcher and struggle through. Um, And so he starts with Japheth, adds to that Gomer is one of Japheth's sons, and then these are the sons of Gomer, um, these multiple layers. Um, as we look at this first section with, with Japheth, I, the only thing I want to point out here um, is verse 5, which speaks about these people spreading out to the coastlands. Um, maybe your translation has something like the isles or the maritime people. Um, the idea is it, it's the edge of the earth. They, they've gone to where the land ends, and, and that's where the people of Japheth have, have spread out to. Japheth, Japheth's offspring is far and wide. Um, we'll, we'll take a little bit of look at some of the geography of this in a little bit. Um, boy, you can, you can trace all of these and spend all kinds of time tracking down who these people are. Um, it's interesting historically. I don't think it's pertinent to the meaning of the text right now. Um, but as we press on then, starting verse 6, uh, we have the sons of Ham. And uh, watch for it again. You'll see um, Ham has these sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, Canaan. And then we'll start with uh, the sons of Cush and, and, and work our way through the grandsons. So starting at verse 6, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sebekta. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, and in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kela, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kela. And that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pathrashim, Kaslahim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kathnarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, the firstborn of Heth, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, and the Arvadites, the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of Canaan dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So if you didn't catch it with Japheth, um, you begin to see it here more clearly. These sons are also founders of cities and nations. And so uh, a number of translations, right at the beginning, they will have uh, Mizraim instead of Egypt. Um, I'm not sure what their logic is in that. Um, Mizraim is just the Hebrew word for Egypt. And of course, Egypt is the beginning of the nation of Egypt. And so we know where he settled. Um, We get to the sons of Canaan, and we see it as well. He doesn't even list them as names. He lists them as peoples. He lists them as as tribes, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites. We're going to run into them in the land of Canaan later in the Old Testament. Now, if you remember from last week, Ham sinned against his father, Noah. 
And so Noah cursed Ham by cursing Canaan. And so if we look back, just you can flip back uh, one page, we see this out of um, Noah's mouth. Uh, chapter 9, starting verse 25. Noah said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So that's the kind of paradigm that we're working on as we move through this. Canaan is cursed. Ham has this dark shadow over him. He was disobedient. Shem is the son um, whom God will bless. Shem is, is the one that, that Yahweh will be his God. Uh, and then Japheth uh, is kind of in the middle, and, and Japheth is going to be blessed as he's brought into the tents of Shem. And, and so it's not too surprising then, um, the way that, that Moses has laid this out. He starts with Japheth, who's kind of the, the least significant, and then Ham has a little more information, and then Shem will come uh, to follow. Um, and it's interesting then, too, as we're reading about Ham and we're seeing these nations of Egypt and Canaan and the enemies of the Lord through the Old Testament in so many ways, the enemies of the, the people of Israel. And it's in the line of Ham uh, that we have Nimrod. Nimrod gives us a hint of what's coming in chapter 11. Verse 8 says that Nimrod was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. Um, First, it could be read, Nimrod began to be a mighty man on the earth. Um, Nimrod, we're told, is a, is a mighty hunter, and so much so that this saying came out of it. He's, he's talking to the, to the people. You know how you guys say, like, a mighty hunter before the Lord, like Nimrod? Well, that's, this is where that came from. Nimrod was a mighty hunter. Um, there's some discussion over this phrase, before the Lord. Um, what does that mean? Does that mean he was an honorable hunter? Uh, I don't think so, the way this is laid out. Um, I think the best explanation, this idea of before the Lord, is drawing its attention to the greatness of it. Kind of like we would say, he's the, he is the best hunter in the world. They, they would say, he's the best hunter before the Lord. It's also not clear what exactly is meant by hunter here. He's this, this great hunter, mighty hunter before the Lord. Um, but then as he, as he lays out what he accomplishes, it's not hunting animals. Um, it may well be hunting people. He is a mighty warrior. Either way, um, that's what comes out of this, um, this statement of conquest that follows. And uh, Nimrod founded these cities, these regions, um, the city of Babel, or Babylon, as it will later become known. Um, from there, he went to Assyria and Nineveh. Nimrod was a, was a great man in the eyes of the world. He was powerful, massively successful in the line of Ham. We'll come back to him in a minute. Um, but it's interesting, this story doesn't follow Nimrod. It makes this statement, he was this mighty, powerful man, and then moves on into the line of Shem. So look with me, we'll follow the line of Shem, then here starting in verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shalaf, Hazarmavath, Jerah, Hadorim, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Shephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to the genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So, as I said, um, 
bit of a picture of, of generally where they have spread to. Sons of Ham are, are down in the, uh, in the green, and, and Japheth is up into the coastlands, up in the, the north and to the east, and Shem is kind of in that middle region. You can see Canaan is marked out with a red box there, um, and the arrow is pointing to where the city of Babel, or Babylon, is to the best of our knowledge. And uh, um, not perfect as we read through these. A lot of these names have historical connections, other biblical connections that you can tie together. Some of them are a little more guesswork, um, but that's generally what's going on. Um, Shem, introduced as the father of the children of Eber. Uh, again, not 100% clear, but that may well be um, where we get the term Hebrew, Eberu. Um, and, and so uh, verse 25 tells us that Eber, uh, to Eber were born two sons. Uh, the first is Peleg, and it says, for in his day the earth was divided. And um, there's all kinds of speculation about what that means. I think it's fairly obvious, the context, um, the earth is divided in 11, 1 to 9. Um, they're spread apart. I, I think that's what that's referring to. Um, the second uh, son is Joktan, and we get a massive list of names, the sons of Joktan, um, but nothing more is said of the descendants of Peleg. And the reason for that um, is there's another genealogy picking up in chapter 11. We'll get there. Peleg gets set aside for the moment. Um, that genealogy in chapter 11 will start again with Shem, and we'll run down through Peleg. It doesn't even mention Joktan, uh, and eventually brings us to Abraham, and uh, the, the rest of the book of Genesis is playing out that genealogy. And so that's just kind of set aside. We'll, we'll get there in a minute. Uh, it's the family through which God's blessing would eventually come. And I think that's an amazing contrast as we're working through this genealogy and seeing these different men. Um, Nimrod is this mighty hunter before the Lord. He is a man's man. He is successful. He is respected. He would have been known and feared throughout the world. He had it all. Like this guy is your first alpha male. He is pulling up in his Lamborghini with a pretty lady on his arm, um, eating his steak, doing his thing, um, probably smoking a cigar on his way to his yacht, right? This is Nimrod. He's got it. Who's Peleg? He's nobody. Um, we know basically nothing about him. But God doesn't glorify Nimrod. God doesn't look at Nimrod and say, hey, there's a man. I can use that guy. This is going to be great. No. His legacy amounts to nothing. Actually, it's, it's worse than nothing. It's nation after nation of wickedness and rebellion against God and judgment. God uses what is weak and small in the eyes of the world, the unimpressive. He's quietly but faithfully unfolding his plan. Uh, it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to see uh, greatness in the eyes of the world and, and to, to desire to be mighty and impressive. I want to be successful, right? I want to I be that. I want to be a world changer. But the question from God is not, uh, are you willing to be a, a great and mighty man for God? Rather, are you willing to quietly, faithfully uh, persevere for Him? Are you willing to be a Peleg, a, a minor character, a footnote in the story of the world, um, but a minor character through whom the blessing of God comes? Two radically different stories here. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, 26, 27, Jesus said, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Um, I'll be honest, I am so tempted. I have such a hard time reading that without translating it into a worldly mindset, right? I have a hard time not thinking that, that being a servant and being the lowliest would be this temporary stop toward greatness in, in a worldly definition. I could just humble myself for a little while and just endure the, the lower place for a time. Then I would become great. Then God would exalt me in, in a worldly way. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Servanthood is the greatness. Lowliness is the position of honor. Greatness in the eyes of the Lord is radically different from greatness in the eyes of the world. They, they are not the same thing sets us up a little bit for what's coming next. 
Um, this is the reality. The people of the earth are spread all over. They're scattered amongst the earth. They're divided. We see over and over again at the end of each section, um, verse 31 is the last one. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and their languages and their lands and their nation. Even the, even the sons have this broken apart, diverse, divided reality. And you'd be tempted to think, this is it. They're, they're fulfilling the mandate that God gave them. Isn't this exactly what they were supposed to do? Right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Um, unfortunately, that's not the case. It's not the case. Take with, a look with me at the, uh, the reason, and, and we see this beginning uh, in chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Um, let me just read this, uh, this section all together for us. Chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same word. So we're flashing back. This is before chapter 10. The whole earth is one language, same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, the, um, therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So the reality from Chapter 10 might look like they're being obedient, they're dispersing and covering the earth, but as we come to chapter 11, we see, oh, we didn't get here willingly. We didn't get here according to plan. We must have been uh, fairly soon after the flood. The whole earth had one language. They, they've settled together in the plain of Shinar. Interestingly, the plain of Shinar is where Nimrod began, and he began with Babylon and then moved to Akkad, which is probably the origins of Akkadia, just to the north, uh, northeast of that. Um, here they are in the plain of Shinar, and they're saying to one another, let's build a city. Let's build a, a defensive position where we can gather together. Not only that, let's build a tower in this city, and we're going to build a tower with its top in the heavens. Pause. What are they doing? What are they trying to do? What are they trying to accomplish here? They're trying to reach up to God. They're trying to elevate themselves up to the plane of where the Almighty God lives. Even the word Babylon, the name that this city would later become known as, um, in, in Assyrian, it's written Bab-Eli, which means the gate of God. This is the gate of God. This is how we get to heaven. It's their gateway. It's interesting, um, the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Why did Eve take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What did, what did the serpent say to her? If you eat from it, you will be like God. Be like God. They're trying to elevate themselves then, and they're trying to elevate themselves again. The text shows they're doing it for two reasons. First, they say we want to build this tower to make a name for ourselves. We want to be remembered. We want to be famous. We want to be important. We want to be like Nimrod. It's self-worship. Along with that, it says they're making this tower so that they would not be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Ironically, that's exactly what God had commanded them to do, disperse. And they said, no, we're going we're to build a tower so that we're not dispersed. Of course, being dispersed would be the end of their culture, the end of their group, the end of their reality together. They don't want to be destroyed. They want to have their autonomy and their strength together. 
the Israelites reading this would have seen uh, some irony here as well that, that we probably miss from our perspective. Um, the Israelites um, later in their existence would have been quite accustomed to building um, with stone and with mortar. These people are using bricks, which we like our bricks, but their bricks are just dried mud. And then there's a replacement that happens. Instead of mortar, they're using bitumen, tar, pitch. Like, this is not a good plan. Can you imagine building a tower and using oil sands as you're in a, in a hot climate? This is terrible. Um, Israel would have been reading this and, and snickering to themselves. Really? They're going to build a tower out of baked mud and tar? This is not going to end well. What do they think? This is a joke. It's terrible. It's an embarrassment. And the Lord comes down to see. This story is actually laid out very poetically, driving toward that line. The Lord came down. He's not impressed. He's not threatened and worried. No, in fact, as God um, wants to see this tower that's supposedly built up to him in his dwelling place, well, he needs to bend down to see. He's like a grown man on his knees looking at this little anthill. He's not threatened. He's not impressed. As I looked at this passage a little more closely, uh, it struck me. I've just, I've always read, ha, I hate it when people's phones ring in church. My goodness. (laughs) Um, Verse 6. The Lord says, um, this is just the beginning of what they would do, right? Um, if, they're, if they're doing this, there's no end to what they will accomplish. And I always took that as a statement of, of, of humans' grandeur and all the things that we could accomplish. And, and again, it almost sounds like God is intimidated. Just imagine what they could accomplish. Um, but I think if we look at the context, especially if we look at the, this, this building of mud and tar, um, I think this is more about man's wickedness. Not not that they would do increasingly great and mighty things, but rather they would do increasingly wicked things, increasingly rebellious things. This is where they start together. Just imagine where they will end up in rebellion against God. And so God's next move is is both an act of judgment, but also an act of mercy. He's, He's bringing down, he's quelling their rebellion And he confuses their language. He changes their speech so that they they don't understand one another. And you can imagine then it wouldn't take long for this project to begin to fall apart. I know I've been on construction crews where the concrete guys would say the engineers are speaking a different language, right? This time it was true. All of a sudden, they're on different languages. And and so there's a clear irony here. Um, They have gathered together to build up this tower to to come up to God and make a name for themselves. And because of that, then, they are scattered. God comes down and spreads them out. And it it wasn't um, the Assyrian uh, Babili by which God called this city. Uh, The first name for it was not the gate of God, but rather Babel uh, in the Hebrew, um, which linguistically is connected to the word confusion. Their great name ends up as a name-calling. You're confused. And so, just as Adam and Eve strove to be like God and were then banished out of the Garden of Eden, so these people strive to rise themselves, raise themselves up to God, and they're banished um, from their city. And so, there's a beauty There's a a glory of God in the the diversity of cultures and and nations and languages in the world around us. God will absolutely redeem that and make it glorious. We'll see that in Revelation. But there's also a sense that that reality, um, as we know it, is a testimony to our rebellion, to our sinfulness. It's a constant reminder of of the foolishness and shame, um, the banishment resulting uh, from our rebellion. This is what happens when humanity tries to to climb up to God. And yet we continue to do the same thing, don't we? How many thousands of years later, here we are, doing the same thing a thousand different ways. 
every world religion, um, every other avenue of spirituality, I don't care what it is, look at it closely, it's a modern tower. It's, it's bricks and tar. How do I get up to God? You can do this and do that, and then God will be pleased with you, or then the, the spirits will align for you. The universe will look on you favorably. Um, some even you will be God. So just to pick on the obvious, the five pillars of Islam. Do these things and you will earn God's favor. You will climb your way up that ladder to God. The four noble truths of Buddhism. Live this way. And eventually you will become one with the one. You will be absorbed into the great deity. The Mormon website says this. Followers of Christ are assured salvation for the eternal, from the eternal consequences of sin if they are obedient. Do it. Follow these rules. Jump through these hoops. Climb this ladder and you will earn your way up to God. The Catholic Church says, do these sacraments. Pray these prayers. Work out your salvation. And they mean that in a different way than we do. It's build yourself up to God. Get there. It's not just false religions, it's the unreligious as well, striving to make a name for themselves, striving to make their mark on this world. I want to be immortal. I want to be great. It's their their own version of building this tower. It's their own version of deity. And the reason it shows up in all these places is because it just reflects the sinful nature of our own hearts. We have been bent toward getting ourselves up to God, um, not just since the Tower of Babel, but since the Garden of Eden. And let's be honest, that bent still exists in each one of us. How many times have I preached a sermon, shared the gospel with my neighbor, or checked off a box in my Bible reading plan, and the thought that goes through my heart is, you're welcome, God. (laughs) Isn't God lucky to have me on his team? Wow. God must be so pleased with me because of all the the things that I've done. God, do you see my my list? You'll definitely be good to me now. None of my kids can get sick because I've lived such this this good life, right? Haven't I made myself my way up to you yet, God? I want to make a name for myself. I want to be great. I don't even mind sharing the stage with God as long as I get the spotlight. I take the baked mud and the tar of my sin-twisted efforts and I start trying to stack them up. Here I come, God. Won't you be impressed with me? Sometimes the Lord leaves those for a while. He lets our towers climb. He lets us build and struggle, pathetic as it is. Every now and then in his mercy, he comes down. He gets down low on his hands and knees, um, to see our pathetic structure and with a breath he knocks it over he lays it flat he humbles us crushed before him it's a good place to be it's grace that he knocks over our towers it's grace that he reminds us that we are dust god doesn't choose the the strong of the world he doesn't choose the things that are impressive he chooses that which is weak and unknown to shame the strong even my best attempts I'm like an ant trying to build a tower to get to the sun. Um, the fact that I would even try is, is an insult to the glory of the sun. Romans 3.20 says this, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God gave us his law. He told us what is good and right and true. And we say, yes, I will climb up that ladder. And God says, no, 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 you don't get it. You can't climb that ladder. That ladder's there just to show you that you're still at the bottom. That ladder's just there to show you how far from me you actually are. No good works that you do, no amount of obedience or effort can ever get you up closer to God. It doesn't work that way. You can't close that gap. That's the reason the the nations were spread out. God opposed their sinful attempt to try to climb up to him, their proud endeavor um, to honor themselves. God, God crushed their attempt. And he did it because his plan um, was never that we would climb up to him, but that he would come down to us. 
that he would come down to us. Because of our sin, we're, we're separated from God. There's nothing we can do to, to close that gap. Genesis 10 shows the, the reality of the human nature divided and dispersed. Genesis 11 shows us the, the reason um, was, was this human pride that still exists in us as we try to climb our way back up to God, but we, we, we can't just leave it there because the rest of the Bible is this great reversal. Through the line of Peleg leading to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, through Moses and the prophets, God is working out this absolute reversal. He's reverse engineering Babylon. Remember, just verses before this, we read earlier God had promised through the mouth of Noah that ultimately God would be honored, not man, and he would be honored as the the God of Shem. They would be God's people. And Canaan would be, um, who was, who was rebellious and, and wicked, he would become the servant, he would be cast out, um, but God would enlarge uh, Japheth, and he would bless them, and they, were, they would be brought into the tents of Shem. They would be blessed as they came into what God was doing through the line of Shem. God's plan was always a rescue plan. It was always a plan to bring them in, to reunite humanity coming through the line of Shem, but reaching then to the ends of the earth, regathering the nations that were dispersed at Babel. And so in the very next chapter, the Lord says to uh, Abram, listen to these, these words with, um, with, with Babel in your mind. L- listen to these words with the, um, the, the, the blessing and curse of Noah in the back of your mind. Genesis 12, um, just verses 2 and 3. The Lord says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Think of that in reference to Babylon, to the Tower of Babel. Abraham's name would be great and and through him All the families of the earth, all these scattered families are going to be blessed through what I'm going to do here, Abraham. Psalm 67, much later in Israel's history, as David is sitting on the throne, he says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us, the descendants of Shem, and make his face shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. You say, may God bless Israel, the descendants of of Shem, so that all the nations would know his salvation. Notice peoples there is plural. It's not people. uh, It's not just many individuals. It's the nations. It's the peoples, the families. He's looking uh, to God's blessing to the families and tribes of the earth. Jeremiah 4.2, the Lord says to to disobedient Israel um, that they need to return to him. Stop running away from him. He's about to send them off into uh, captivity in Babylon. And he says, if you swear as the Lord lives, quote, so if you would speak this way, if you would say as the Lord lives in truth and in justice and in righteousness, if you would return to the Lord, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. If, if Israel would come back to the Lord, then the nations would come to the Lord. They would see his glory through them. God would be glorified, and through them, through the descendants of Shem, all the nations would be blessed. God's plan was always for the, the nations, not that, that they would somehow climb up to him, but rather um, that, that he would come down to them. And Jesus is God come down, quite literally. This time, not coming down to frustrate their feeble attempts to climb up to him, arrogantly working for their own glory, but rather coming down to accomplish his plan, to rescue and restore for his glory. We read uh, Romans 3.20 just a few moments ago. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So no one's going to climb up to God by their obedience. That's Babel. But the next verse, look at verses 21 and 22. But now, now at the coming of Christ, now the, the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The righteousness that, could, that we could never earn by our slaving works that God desires to give through Jesus Christ, through faith in Him. In Jesus, watch this, this is astounding, Babel is reversed. John 10, 15 and 16, Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep, and I have other sheep who are not of this fold. And I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so that there will be one flock, one shepherd that's reuniting. I have my my people, Israel, Jesus came first to the Jews. He was the Messiah to the Jews. And then he said, oh yeah, and there's others that are not of this fold. And they're going to come and there will be one flock, one people, one shepherd. The flock of Jesus is made up of sheep from Israel and sheep from the nations. He's gathering it together. Luke 24, 45, 47. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus is teaching Old Testament. This is what Jesus says about the teachings of the Old Testament. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead so that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That was a radical statement. That was mind-blowing. Now, it's what the Old Testament taught. It's what they should have seen, but they didn't, they didn't get it. And Jesus is, is putting it all together. It starts in Israel, and it's going to, to all the nations. That's why the Great Commission, Matthew 28, is go make disciples of all nations. After Jesus died and had risen again, the disciples are together waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. Pentecost. And this is God's sign that in Christ, Babel is being undone. Think about it. At Babel, God confused their languages so that they could not understand one another, and and from there they were dispersed. Acts 2, 5, and 6 tells us this about the day of Pentecost. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. You ever wonder what the gift of tongues was about? Why on earth? What was it for? What's the point? What's it? Why? It's, I don't understand. This is why. This is why. It's an Old Testament fulfilling. God is making a statement. He is gathering a people from every nation and he's unconfusing their language. He's saying, I'm going to make you one. I'm going to bring you together. It started with the Jews in Acts 2, and the question then lingers, right? Is this just for us? Is he just gathering Jews from every nation? And then as we work our way through Acts and we see the gospel continue to go out and they're wrestling with this reality, Acts 10, 44 as Peter is sharing the good news of Jesus with the Gentiles, footnote, um, the, the, the Greek word for Gentiles. We, we have these weird Bible words that we use and we don't know why. Um, even the word tongues, the, the, the word behind that is glossae. It's just languages. Um, here the word Gentiles is ethne, ethnos. It means the nations, the ethnicities, the different ethnic groups. Peter is sharing with the different ethnicities people who are not Jews. And while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jews who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, even on the nations. 
For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? And this is so important, just as we have. God fulfilled his promises to Israel as he came. The Spirit is poured out, and now the Spirit is poured out in the exact same way on the nations. This is a shock to the believing Jews. This is what they had missed from the Old Testament. The coming Holy Spirit was was God's fulfillment to them, but God's plan had always been broader. God's plan was always to to bring uh, Japheth into the tents of Shem. He was fulfilling it to the nations. The promise of God's rescue was always to come through the Jews and to the nations. Gift of tongues was never just a party trick. It is a very intentional sign. And it's a gift of languages used by God pointing to this reality. He's undoing Babel. He's, he's bringing, them, bringing back together what had been separated. And, and in Christ, we who are from many nations, tribes, families, I think I'm like 164th Jew. I don't know if that gets me anything, but not a whole lot. Um, we are the nations. We are the Gentiles. And we're brought back together Sons of God, direct descendants of, of one Father. First Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this of the, the church. Peter's writing to the church scattered of multiple nationalities, and he says to them, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you, you weren't a people, you didn't have an identity, you were, you were scattered, you were multiple different peoples, you were, you were Genesis 10, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're adopted, we're brought in. We who were once not a people, we were, we were scattered nations, we were divided and, and antic, antagonistic and and bickering now we are a new people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His language couldn't be any grander. It's the church, a new nation under Christ, a new people, a new creation made up of Israel and every other nation brought in. And so Revelation 5, 9 and 10 celebrates this. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And it culminates in in, in Revelation 18, the great city of Babylon, Babel. Now, to, to, to what degree you understand that Babylon is literal, metaphorical, that's going to depend on your eschatology. But at very least, uh, it symbolizes the pride of Babel, the, the world of people striving according to their own strength to be great in the world, striving to build their own tower to the heavens. We're told that the, the nations and kings have committed adultery with her. They have cheated on God. With Babylon, the merchants of the earth have grown rich and powerful, hawking her wares. Babylon is the the highest symbol of the the worldly system of exalting ourselves. And and verse 5 tells us that, that it's no longer her tower that rises to the heaven, but rather it is her sin that is heaped up to the heavens. Verse 21, listen to this. And so Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. The city of Babylon. Those who in pride are trying to to secure their own immortality, who are in rebellion against God and, and, and fighting for the glory of their own name, they will be utterly wiped out by the judgment of God in an instant. And in contrast, if we keep reading through to Revelation 21, verses 10 and 11, John writes this, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city. Not the the sinful city of Babylon, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance 
like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Babylon, trying to climb up to God, is utterly destroyed. The new Jerusalem, the holy city, comes down from God, descends to the new earth. Look at verses 23-24. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by this light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The new Jerusalem is inhabited by the new people of God. The royal priesthood gathered from all the nations into the city of God that has come down to us. This is God's grace. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. This is good news for us Gentiles. This is motivating news for us. We used to say we had a Christian nation or something like it. We sure have a lot of freedom. The ends of the earth need to know. The world needs to hear. Babylon's not working. That way doesn't get to heaven. That road is dead end. It's cliff. There's a better way. God has come down. He's come to us in Jesus. Melanie and um, Eric, when you guys join and um, prepare to lead us in worship again, whether it's this century or not, I don't know. But the odds of the world coming to an end, yeah, it's 100%. It's not one in six. This world and this worldly system um, that so proudly opposes God, that is so determined, we're, we're going to fly our spaceship up into the heavens and we will be immortal, we'll be destroyed. It will be brought down to nothing. Those who trust in Christ people not just from the nation of Israel, but from every language and tribe and nation and tongue, people from the furthest corners of the earth, from the, from the coastlands, who will give up on their bricks and tar, who will humbly lay down their tools, renounce that way of trying to make a name for themselves, repent of their pride and trying to impress God and earn his approval, those who will come to God by faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him and him alone because it's he who saves so that no one may boast except boast in the Lord and his mercy. They will be welcomed in as the people of God into this eternal city. What a great hope we have. Um, would you stand? Let's sing of uh, the marvelous.